Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 11 of You Don't Know Jack. I am your host, Sarah Dimio, bringing you everything you need to know in the career of the legendary Jack Nicholson. Let me start off by apologizing. I know I am the worst. I had said that I would never skip another week, and I did it again. Life gets a little unpredictable at times, and I was so mad at myself for having to skip a week again. So lesson learned there. But now I am back, and now here's another reason why I'm a terrible person. Before episode 10, my review of Easy Rider was released, I said that we were out of the B-movie era in Jack's career. Well, like I mentioned at the end of episode 10, I had my fingers crossed. We're not totally out yet. Today, we've got another outlaw biker flick to talk about, 1970s Rebel Rousers. But before I get into that, I need to mention something that I missed in Easy Rider, and it was brought to my attention by a listener. In the first act of Easy Rider, as Wyatt and Billy have just started on their journey, There's the scene where they arrive at the commune, where the hitchhiker that they picked up has invited them. I mentioned how at this commune, there were all these young adults planting seeds, growing their own food. Well, later on in the day at this commune, the whole group, and this is including the hitchhiker and Wyatt and Billy, they're all standing in a circle and they're about to eat. But before they eat, they're led in a very simple prayer. By a young hippie. This man's hair is long, though not overly long, but untamed, and he has a beard. He's very winded. He's tired from doing manual labor all day. And he gives thanks for the food they're going to receive, and he asks that their efforts be rewarded to produce simple food for their simple tastes. Now, I don't think I can really accurately describe him because he had such a distinct look. Even as I was watching this part, I remember really taking notice of this particular scene with this very shaggy young guy leading the rest of this hippie commune in prayer. But I think it was that he wasn't made to look like a stereotypical hippie. You know what I mean, with long hair reaching all the way down his back and headbands and peace signs all over the place. I think he was more of an accurate portrayal of what somebody in that culture would have looked like back then. Well, I describe this character to you because the actor in this role was Robert Walker Jr., the same actor who played Ensign Pulver just five years earlier. You remember Ensign Pulver. It was only six episodes ago. That clean-cut, boyish Ensign in that goofy early 60s Technicolor movie and this rough, long-haired, bearded hippie in this late 60s counterculture drama? Same guy. And the thing is, I remember when I was reviewing Ensign Pulver, I looked up. Robert Walker Jr.'s other film credits, and I did see Easy Rider in there, but obviously I must have forgotten by the time I got to Easy Rider. And if you haven't been following along watching the films that I've been reviewing, maybe now is the time to start because I don't think I can fully explain the shock of realizing 
that these two characters are the same person. So thank you, Lou, for pointing that out to me. See, this is why I want to hear from you guys. You all keep me in line. So I'm glad that we're still talking a bit about Easy Rider because it makes for an interesting comparison with today's review of Rebel Rousers. It feels like in the timeline of Jack's projects that today we're moving backwards, not only because Rebel Rousers falls into the B-movie category, but also just in terms of story development. It's also appropriate that I should bring up Ensign Pulver again, because I had said in that episode that there really is no clear-cut moment when an actor crosses the line from low-budget B-movies to quote-unquote real movies. Success is far from that easy to pin down. But here's what happens, and this has always been a common practice in Hollywood. Rebel Rousers was filmed before Easy Rider. It was released after the success of Easy Rider. And it's pretty simple. It's so when the film comes out, it has another recognizable name to use in its advertising to draw more people in. But it's a gamble at the same time, obviously, because you can never know with absolute certainty how successful the first film is going to be. And there's other factors too, like, is it worth it to hold off and not make our money back right away? But I think it's fair to say that in this case, it was the right move. Like I said, with Rebel Rousers, I feel like we're headed backwards with story development. The difference with Easy Rider is that Easy Rider is an in-depth story about a counterculture movement going on at the time. It was a story of these two guys who didn't fit the mold of what society wanted or expected out of young men their age. They didn't want to fit that mold. But what was so scary to society about Wyatt and Billy? What was their crime, other than the drug deal at the beginning of the movie, that is? But were they a danger or a threat to anyone along their journey? No. The same cannot be said for the townspeople in the Deep South who took one look at Wyatt, Billy, and George Hansen as they were riding through and took it upon themselves to be their judge, jury, and executioners. And that's why Easy Rider was such a success. It doesn't paint the hippie bikers as the bad guys. There's more to a character than that. With Rebel Rousers, we don't have that. Rebel Rousers was directed and produced by Martin B. Cohen, who was the manager of Bruce Dern and his wife at the time, Diane Ladd. Cohen had created his own production company called Paragon International Pictures. Ever hear of them? No? Okay, no. The idea for Rebel Rousers came after the success of The Wild Angels in 1966, which I talked briefly about in our last episode, as it starred Peter Fonda and Bruce Dern, and was directed by Roger Corman. So Cohen wanted to make his own outlaw biker film. So he cast Bruce Dern and Diane Ladd, who was pregnant with she and Bruce's daughter, actress Laura Dern at the time, And it was Bruce Dern who brought in Jack, 
along with Jack's good friend, Harry Dean Stanton. The script was written by Martin B. Cohen, along with Michael Kars and Abe Polsky. Ever hear of them? No. Cinematography, I will say, was by Laszlo Kovacs, cinematographer for a number of movies we've already talked about, Hell's Angels on Wheels, Psych Out, and Easy Rider. And the cast is as follows, and this is the order in which they're billed in the credits. I personally don't think they should come in this order, but as it is in the movie, it goes Cameron Mitchell as Paul Collier, Bruce Dern as J.J. Weston, Diane Ladd as Karen, Harry Dean Stanton as Randolph Halverson. However, in the movie, he's credited as just Dean Stanton. Jack Nicholson as Bunny. Gotta love these biker names, am I right? Neil Nephew as one of the gang members. Neil Nephew was another friend of Jack and Harry Dean Stanton. And John Bud Cardos as the sheriff. The film opens similarly to Hell's Angels on Wheels with the motorcycle gang, the rebel rousers, tearing through the streets on their bikes. And well, also similar is the music. We've gone back to the 1960s mod style music. This is definitely not born to be wild and rock and roll. And I think the issue that I have with this type of music is, other than it's just not what I consider enjoyable, is that it doesn't fit. Music is such an important factor in helping to tell the story in filmmaking. Whether it's an original score being composed specifically for a film, or it's an original pop or rock song, What was so great about the opening credit sequence in Easy Rider was how perfectly that song, Born to be Wild, fit the sequence. Try to imagine that scene without it, just dead silence like the opening scene. Or dare I say, with the type of music we have here in Rubble Rousers, or like we had in Hell's Angels on Wheels. It changes the whole scene. Totally different feeling we would have from it. And no disrespect to the composer of the music used in Rebel Rousers, William Luce, but you'll notice I said the composer of the music used. I did not say the composer for Rebel Rousers. This was stock music. William Luce was a composer of stock musical cues, and his work was commonly used in various films, television series, and cartoons. So the Rebel Rousers, led by J.J., played by Bruce Dern, ride into this southwestern town. At the same time, Paul Collier, played by Cameron Mitchell, is arriving into town. He steps out of his car, and he's nearly mowed down by the Rebel Rousers. They're creating such mayhem blazing through this quiet, small town. But J.J. stops because he recognizes Paul. Turns out the two of them knew each other in high school and they played on the same football team. They exchange pleasantries briefly, but they don't really catch up or anything because JJ needs to head on with the gang as they're headed over to this diner that's nearby because that's where they heard things are really happening. So the gang heads on to the diner 
J.J. rides his motorcycle right in through the doors of the place. And this is where we first get a good look at Jack, or Bunny, that is. He's wearing these black and white striped pants that you just can't miss. And I read on Wikipedia that Cameron Mitchell remembered Jack picking out these striped pants to wear along with a stocking hat so he would stand out in the film. See, that's our man always thinking of these things. So the rebel rousers are raising all kinds of hell at this diner, and it seems that the patrons, along with the wait staff of the place, are actually loving it. There's these elderly men playing cards, totally unbothered. There's an elderly nun in there who JJ talks to, and he has Bunny come over and he introduces the two. Music starts playing, there's girls at the place coming up and dancing on the bar. It seems that a good time is being had by all. Until one of the girls, seemingly part of the party, sneaks away and calls the sheriff's office. She lets the sheriff know what's going on, and he says he'll be right there. Now, this was something I thought was pretty entertaining. The sheriff then goes into the next room to get his deputy a large older man, asleep in a chair, and he has to coerce him into coming down to the diner with him. Meanwhile, this deputy is bitching like hell. You said I would just have to come in and that was it, and so on and so forth. So I appreciated the comedic moment tossed in there for good measure. So they finally get down there. The sheriff and his deputy stand in the doorway. The sheriff not even that loudly, yells to the crowd to break it up. But, of course, nobody's paying attention. So without even attempting a second time, he fires his gun up at the ceiling. And, well, yeah, that's a way to get control of a room. So JJ, as we've already established, is the leader of the group. But he's not like the rest of them. He has a much more clean look. His face is shaven, his clothes are clean, And he comes off as very diplomatic. He's talking to the sheriff, attempting to defuse the situation. But the sheriff wants none of that, just tells them all to get out of town. Now, meanwhile, let's get back to Paul. Paul heads over to a hotel where he has a regular room. Paul's reason for showing up in town is that he's looking for his girlfriend, Karen, played by Diane Ladd. Karen is pregnant as Diane Ladd really was pregnant at the time with Laura Dern. And rather than marry Paul, as is expected in that situation, Karen took off. Paul knows the staff at the hotel, so they let him into the room. Karen isn't there. She's out for her morning walk on the beach. So Paul waits for her. When Karen returns, she walks in, sees him, and she's not surprised. She's been waiting for him to show up. They ease in to the whole talk that they get into, Karen tells Paul that they redecorated the whole room for her. She met a Mexican woman who was good at sewing and paid her to make some curtains for the place. But as they get into it, I actually felt like there was some real depth to Karen because she talks about how she didn't just want to become a wife to a husband who is working all the time. She wants to continue to have her own life and raise her baby. So she felt like... Maybe she doesn't want to marry Paul just because it's expected. Diane Ladd actually had a really impressive scene here. 
So the rebel rousers have taken off towards the beach. They're tearing through again until they get to this steep hill. Impressively, JJ is able to coast his bike down the hill and onto the beach. The rest of the gang park their bikes at the top and walk down. JJ tries to impress everyone further by riding his bike back up the hill, but he can't get up there and actually topples over. So Bunny dives on JJ and the two start to wrestle. Then when Bunny gets off him, that's when Randolph, played by Harry Dean Stanton, dives on him. And at this point, the whole group is roughhousing. Now, when they all get down to the shore, Bunny shoves one guy, then another guy jumps onto Bunny's back, and then a fight ensues. The other guy insists he was just playing around, but Bunny is ready to knock him out. So J.J. gets in between them and breaks up the fight, and he yells at the other guy, Why are you here? You're here because of me. And the guy keeps yelling back. He was just playing. So J.J. tells him to go take a walk. Go somewhere and just take a walk. So this guy goes off, and he's joined by two others, including Randolph and another gang member who distinctly wears a black cowboy hat. I think, I think that Cowboy is the name the character goes by. But regardless, for our purposes, that's what I'm going to call him. Now nearby, Paul and Karen have driven up this remote area and have parked to talk some more. Everything seems to be going okay between them. And when they're ready to leave, Paul goes to start up the car, but it won't start. And at first they laugh about it. You know, it seems like an old line. Oh, the car won't start. What should we do now? But that feeling quickly dissipates because this was actually a little chilling. I know I would be terrified if my car wouldn't start and I saw this. In the rearview mirror, we see Cowboy crouching onto the back of the car with his hat and his shades on, staring into the mirror grinning. And before Paul and Karen even have time to react, the other two show up, bouncing on the car, shaking it side to side. Paul locks his door, reaches over and locks Karen's door. Karen is screaming. Meanwhile, the guys are looking in through her window, making faces at her. But luckily, JJ comes and meets back up with them, and he puts a stop to it. He scolds the guys for harassing these nice people, and tells them how he knows Paul. They went to high school together. So JJ says, look, we're having a little get-together down at the beach. Why don't you two come down and join us? And he volunteers the guy that he told to take a walk in the first place to stay and fix the car for them. He says he's a great mechanic. So without any other option, Paul and Karen go along with the rest of them back to the beach. And this gave me a chuckle. Harry Dean Stanton has a great line as they're headed back, leaving this one guy behind. I just hope I can do it justice right now. In the most fabulous voice ever, he calls back to the guy, don't forget the potato salad. And I have to imagine that line was improvised. I hope it was because it just came out of nowhere and it was so perfect in the moment. So they get back to the beach with the rest of the gang And I would say it takes about 30 seconds for things to get out of hand. Bunny comes over to them, drink in hand, takes notice of Karen, asks her if she wants to go swimming. 
clearly uncomfortable. She says, no, I don't have my swimsuit. They say, oh, you can strip down. We'll go skinny dipping. As they persist, Paul takes Karen by the hand, begins to lead her away. But Bunny keeps getting in front of them, stopping them from leaving. And he starts to get a little rough. He shoves Paul. Paul shoves back. What is hey, Wait a second. Ah! Ah! Boy Stay out of it, man, unless you want to take his place. Sit down over there. And without warning, Cowboy kicks Paul and knocks him to the ground. JJ tries to intervene, but Cowboy pulls a pistol out on him. You don't believe in us. You don't shut your mouth! Oh, come on and shut up! You don't ever use your mouth. You happen to be the most violent person I've ever seen in my life. You know that? You are really sick. Don't you ever use your mouth on me again. Don't you ever. Hey, JJ. Hey, don't worry about the little lady. We're going to take care of your friend's old lady real fine. But JJ comes up with an idea to delay anything from happening to Karen. He says that they're going to have a game, as he calls it. They're going to race on the beach, and whoever wins gets the girl. But until there's a winner, everyone has to keep their hands and their mouth off of her. Now, this is where I start to have a real problem with the movie. Already, we don't have much of a story here. The plot is that this couple, Paul and the pregnant Karen, become hostages to this group, the Rebel Rousers. And then Karen becomes a prize for the gang to compete over, while her only hope of being saved is with the leader of the gang, JJ. Karen, in a very short amount of time, went from being a well-developed, complex character to being nothing more than a damsel in distress. So I guess a story like this might appeal to anyone at the time with a fantasy of being an outlaw biker, no rules, getting into fights, doing whatever they want, whenever they want. But to me, I found the script to be a little misogynistic. I mean, obviously the characters, the gang members in the story are misogynistic. That goes without saying. But I'm saying the script itself is. Here at the beginning, you had this woman who was uncertain about her future, so she decided not to stay and marry the father of her baby. And now she doesn't know what to do. She's the helpless pregnant woman in need of being saved. After some time goes by, Paul regains consciousness, and he sneaks away and heads towards town to get help. And that just had me like, what? 
I don't care how injured you are. In my opinion, it does not make you a hero to sneak away from the gang and leave your pregnant girlfriend with them while you go desperately to find someone to help. So that right there, I felt, was a pretty poor choice by the screenwriters. So by the time night falls, Paul has not yet found help. The beach is dark. They've got a fire going. Bunny has one, Karen. So now they're going to have themselves a little makeshift wedding. JJ, who had tried to be the hero, reluctantly volunteers to officiate, as he has the Harley Davidson owner's manual. That's pretty much the Bible, you know. So Bunny stands up front by the fire. They have Karen come out. Now at this point, I was like, okay, I'm ready for this movie to be over now. How many more ways are they going to humiliate her and pass her around like this? But don't worry, help eventually does arrive and Paul and Karen are reunited. But I just felt that this movie really lacked focus. Was it primarily a story about the relationship between Paul and Karen? Was it a journey of self-discovery for JJ trying to figure out how he ever became linked up with the Rebel Rousers? None of the subplots were well thought out enough. So I felt like there was not much to be said as far as quality goes and Rebel Rousers comes across as just another attempt to capitalize on the popularity of biker flicks. I think there's a good chance this will probably be my most scathing review of this podcast. Jack, I love you, but as long as you are in this movie, I would not be doing a thorough job unless I gave my honest opinions of it. And like I've been saying, there's a lot of gray area when you're crossing over from struggling actor to Hollywood superstar. There's going to be box office smashes, and sometimes they're followed by duds. But as always, I want you to decide for yourself how you feel about Rebel Rousers. You can find the movie in full, totally free, on YouTube. Did you have similar feelings to mine? Or did you find something good about it that I missed and that I need to be schooled on? So, you know what I think we need? I think we need to move on from the biker flicks and try something totally different. So, let me ask you this. Do you like musicals? Second question. Do you like Barbara Streisand? Well, hopefully at least one of those questions was close to a yes, because next week we are talking about 1970s On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, in which Jack has one scene. It may just be one scene, but if Jack Nicholson is in it, you know I have an episode for it. So if you liked what you heard today, please leave me a review and a nice rating because that will help other Jack fanatics to find this podcast. Subscribe to You Don't Know Jack on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. You Don't Know Jack is a production of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com to find other great original podcasts. So until then, I'm Sarah Dimio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack. 
And don't forget the potato salad.